Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I'm back after a couple of days. I wanted to thank uh, Mona Charon and Bill Crystal for sitting in for me. Uh, we're joined today uh, by our regular Kim Whaley, our, our, our legal slash voting expert. So, Kim, thanks for coming on the podcast. Happy to be here, Charlie. This is, we were just chatting a little bit earlier that I, you know, spent a couple of days trying to be like a normal human being. And so it's a little bit difficult to make the reentry. You know, when you think about other things and you kind of know what like real people in the real world act like and do. And then, and then we come back and we have to deal with the dysfunction and everything. And it's like, you come back, it's Wednesday and, you know, things are still stupid. Yeah, yeah it, it doesn't get better. The gaslighting is so oppressive. Uh, and so I'm, I'm glad you had a break. I think that's important for the brain. Oh, I, I think so too. So I, I don't know. I, I I did tweet about this yesterday. I had a, I had an interesting moment where um, I was wearing my sunglasses and my mask at Reagan National, and realized that I was kind of liking the fact that I didn't have to. I was kind of incognito, which meant that I didn't have to interact awkwardly with anyone, including <laughs> well, including including certain politicians who take that flight from Washington back to Milwaukee. You know, you run into people, and yeah, was, well. I just honestly, I'm glad that you're not. I'm not the only one who likes the mask, right? Because it also, it also makes it impossible for people to read your face when you're, you know, oh. have, having a moment of of astonishment or disgust or happiness. I don't know. Well, that's true, and, and you have the you have the mask and the sunglasses, and you're kind of like Mothman. <laughs> so, no, I mean, literally, I, I look. I'm antisocial to begin with. I mean, I I think I've I've confessed that I don't work and play well with others, um, and so. Maybe as kind of a little bit of a you know misanthrope, this is this was perfect. But sitting there watching people, you know, c you know, coming and going on the plane that that otherwise I might have to make small talk with. And no, no, I don't want to be say. I mean, and I'm talking about people who the conversations might be really awkward, like a certain former governor of the state who was walked past me and did not recognize me. Which was, oh, that's which nice. Which was okay. So I want to talk about a number of things with you including the uh, major Supreme Court ruling on voting rights last week, you know, explain what it does and what it doesn't do. I also want to talk about this, the six-month anniversary. Uh, my newsletter today is Six Months That Changed America. Um, as I admit in the newsletter, I have mixed feelings about that headline because I'm not sure that it changed us or just simply exposed us. But, Kim, we, d we do a little bit of uh, palate cleansing. And since I've been gone, I feel like I have to catch up on the crazy a little bit. So I'm ready. Um, we have some breaking news from um, a right wing activist named uh, Lauren Witzke, who uh, broke what what really kind of a big deal story uh, in her appearance on Infowars the other day. So this is this is Lauren Witzke with with the report from the front. There is a war on Christians. They did this. They targeted me and they made an example out of me because I'm an outspoken Christian who vocally opposes the Equality Act. Listen, Alex, I don't know if you know much about it, but they're about to they're trying to illegalize Jesus Christ and the, the scripture and categorize. Absolutely. It as Just like in Europe and Canada where they're arresting pastors. Tell folks about it. Whoa, wait, this is this is big. Big if true, Kim. Illegalizing right? Jesus Christ. You know what, Charlie? I think what we can agree on is that we have to worry about authoritarianism in this country and the the, uh, the yep. degradation of the rule of law. I, I miss that part <laughs> where we are arresting Jesus Christ. But hey, if if we have some sh something we can share, I I'm all for it. 
But I, I, it's, it is interesting just to get that sense of if you've spent time with normal people to realize the level of hysteria. And then we, we talk about this every once in a while, that it's sort of like crack cocaine, that you have to constantly be increasing the, the dosage to get the dopamine hit. So it's like, it's not just that I oppose this bill. They are illegalizing Jesus Christ. And they are going to be, you know, making scriptures illegal because your victims, they're coming for you. Whoa, no wonder people well, are excited. Now, again, that, that okay, in fairness, that was Alex Jones's show. Yeah, so, but people listen and people believe that. Yeah, and, and to me, it, it's scary. On the other hand, I think it also speaks to the sort of death throes of conservatism uh, traditionally, and that, you know, where's the policy platform? We have to. They, no. They're panicked. They're terrified. They're lying. There's. It's kind of you know. It's like somebody drowning, um, and uh, and gasping for air. Uh, that's that's at least the the optimistic slant. But, to but that it's, Amer- it's this is how we make America great. So anyway, that that's Alex Jones show. So it's like okay, Charlie, you went you went deep into the fever swamps and you <laughs> okay, found something crazy. Out. Well, this this was on. Now this is Fox News, watched by millions. The network that sets the agenda for the Republican Party. And Tucker Carlson has a new crusade. I mean, he's pounding on the anti-white hysteria. I mean, they, they've just like taken off any, you know, any any pretense of what they're doing. It's like they're they're coming for white people, and it's all anti-white. And what we need to do to fight this is cameras in the classroom. Okay, cameras in the classroom. Completely normal idea, right? Tucker Carlson from last night. Overwhelming majority of Americans and pollsters have found this pretty clearly. Think this is insane. They think you should judge people by what they do, not on the basis of their skin color. They believe in Martin Crit- Luther King. Critical race. So it is BS. In fact, it's more than that. It's civilization-ending poison. Well, but wait. it's everywhere. How widespread is it? Well, we can't really be sure until what? we finally get cameras in the classroom as we put them on the chest of police mm-hmm. officers, until we finally get a civilian mm-hmm. review board in every town in America to oversee oh, the people teaching your children, forming their minds. And let's hope we get both of those very soon. But until we do, we can't know exactly how widespread this is. But there are indications. We know that these ideas, this poison, has made it all the way to expensive private schools in central Ohio. Okay. So to review, we really don't know how big a deal it is, but it is civilization ending. Okay, a little cognitive uh, there. And we have no idea how widespread it is, but it has. we found it in a private school. In central Ohio, which is why we need to put cameras in every classroom in America. I have two responses okay. to that. One is the First Amendment, our friend, that under the last clip, the idea seems to be that there's this break, you know, crushing uh, oppression of religious freedom that we need to worry about. And then we're going to start oppressing speech by monitoring children and teachers. So that is, there's a cognitive dissonance. And the other is, I wonder if this, this is one of your friends you were avoiding in the airport, Tucker Carlson. People I know who've known him for many years say there was a day and a moment. Uh, I know we're going to talk about J.D. Vance, where he was, he was rational and reasonable and kind of an affable person. I, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what's in the water. I have a question, Kim. Who wears the cameras in the classroom? Because we we put cameras on cops. Obviously, you're not putting cameras on the teachers, right? Because otherwise you'd then be filming the kids, which would be problematic, even in Fox News world. Okay, so who wears the cameras? 
the body cams. This you have a designated right wing student. Yeah, or I mean, maybe <laughs> you know we also not to put any ideas in people's heads, but we did have idea you know thoughts about armed guards in classrooms. Maybe they're the ones that that, that wear them. I don't, you know? I don't know. So See, that trying, you know, guns guns for guns, right? Yeah, I'm I'm trying to imagine the you you put a camera on your average I don't know teenage boy what you'd end up with a lot of footage of. I'm just saying, I just, I'm not sure that, I'm not, I'm not sure that it would work out the way that Tucker Carlson thinks it would. Okay, so uh, deep thoughts from our political leaders. We're going to get uh, to J.D. Vance in a moment. But uh, uh, deep, deep, deep thoughts from our political leaders. Kevin McCarthy, uh, the minority leader and uh, perhaps future speaker of the House of Representatives, had some deep thoughts about race and politics. And if they were really serious about this, Maxine Waters or Cory Bush, why wouldn't she move to change the name of the Democratic Party that fought to defend slavery while the Republicans fought against it? <laughs> huh. Makes you think, doesn't it? If they were serious, mm -hmm. why do they still call themselves Democrats? <laughs> I, I mean, I don't know. Is there anyone who understood that comment? I mean, is that is that irony that we're missing or something? Dinesh D'Souza gets it, which is, you know... Democrats, let's go back. Let, let's let's just dial back to 1860, when the Democrats were the party of slavery and the Republicans were the party of Abraham Lincoln. Let's let's dine out on that for another 50 years. Well, you know, I actually, again, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. I, I do think it probably comes as a surprise to many people that Republicans were the anti-slavery party way back in the day. And how far has it as it evolved. I, I have no, I don't even, I can't fathom that, but people forget that. So you, you, you made a reference to J.D. Vance and I, you know, I, I actually woke up this morning thinking I'm not going to pile on J.D. Vance, but I couldn't help myself. You know, J.D. Vance um, wrote Hillbilly Elegy, which really got a lot of attention at the time because it's kind of shown a light on people who'd kind of been forgotten. They, they, you know, shorthand, they were the Trump voters, but they were people who were living in dysfunctional, uh, neglected America. And there was kind of this brief moment when he was a, um, a serious thinker and, and had some interesting sociological insights. Well, in case you haven't been paying any attention, um, Peter Thiel wrote out a check, the billionaire wrote out a check for, you know, a couple, you know, $10 million to, Advance J.D. Vance's political career. J.D. Vance is now running for the United States Senate in, uh, in the state of uh, Ohio. And he's not only transformed himself into a Trump Trumpist, but I mean, the, the guy's gone. I mean, he's gone all the way. And, you know, again, he's one of these people. He's not the only one who used to get Trump and said negative things about him. He had a whole bunch of tweets about, you know, what a, you know, how Trump was like heroin and Trump was, you know, bigoted and all of these things. And now he's full Trump, full culture warrior. Um, this guy has completely, you know, the, the, the self-humiliation is really extraordinary. And of course, over the weekend, he has to explain why he wrote op-ed pieces and tweets criticizing Trump, and now he's kissing the orange backside with uh, with great relish. Uh, this is this is J.D. Vance's uh, apology tour on Fox. 
You met with former President Trump earlier this year. It's a coveted endorsement in these primaries for sure. And as you know, there are reports out there that say that you have these deleted tweets that come from 2016 where you heavily criticized the president, that you were voting for somebody else. Um, one, can you confirm for us that those were, in fact, your tweets and that you did, in fact, delete them? And if so, what's changed? Sure. Well, like, like a lot of... Uh, people, I, I criticized Trump back in 2016, and I'd ask folks not to judge me by based on what I, I said in 2016, because I've been very open about the fact that I, I did say those critical things, and uh, I regret them, and I regret being wrong about the guy. Deleting I think that he was tweets. a good president. I think he made a lot of good decisions for people, and I think he took a lot of flack. And as you probably appreciate, Alicia, you know, I've, I've taken a lot of flack myself over the last few years for standing uh, up for the president's voters, but also standing up for the agenda. And I think that's the most important thing is, is not what you said five years ago, but whether you're willing to t stand up and take, take the heat and take the hits for actually defending the interests of the American people, because that's what, what this business of politics should be all about. So, Kim, I, I know it kind of feels a little bit old, but there's that, that this class of people here, the, the Elise Stefanics, the Nikki Haley's, the J.D. Vance's, these are smart guys who once sort of got it about Trump, but now feel that they have to show loyalty and remake themselves into the Trumpist image, but in, 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 the, in the dumbest, crudest possible way. Yeah. I mean, two things can come to mind. One is integrity and some sense of just a value system. I, I don't understand that. And the second is just the the dislogic of, of what he's saying. So in 2016, he was critical. And now, 2021, after the January 6th insurrection after 600,000 plus deaths that were arguably avoided in uh, um, to large degree if Trump had just endorsed MAGA masks early on, for example, after 30,000 lies out of his mouth and, and counting and when he was in the White House, after multiple indictments and jail sentences of people close to him. I mean, on and on and on. This would take hours to now this now this is a reason to to realize he was wrong in 2016 because things have turned out so well i i, I don't know this yeah. this kind of thing makes my brain and my heart hurt well and you know vance was very clear about his his critique of trump i mean he said that his policies range from the immoral to the absurd uh he once tweeted out trump makes people i care about afraid immigrants muslims yeah. etc because of this i find him reprehensible god wants better of us and he later you know after uh, the access hollywood tape he tweeted out that uh, you know that the world is watching christians defending trump you know we should be better than all of this and now it's like yeah kind of never mind that you know not only have i changed my mind about all of this i'm willing to actually attack the same people that donald trump attacked i mean it's and apologize. I, I, yeah, and apologize. Yeah. And he's, uh, he's all into like the one. And part of the thing about guys like this is they have to show that they're more extreme than anybody. So he's he's retweeting guys from American greatness. He's dabbling in some of this January 6th trutherism, you know, defending the insurrectionists. It is. I, I don't understand what the end game is here, frankly, Charlie. And I know we're going to talk about the six Sen months. A Senate seat. Um, but even that, uh, you know, this is all, if you look at it from a meta level, 
um, a Senate seat where the so-called platform, he's saying this is all about policy platform. The platform is, you know, d- mindless slavish devotion to Donald Trump and endorsing something other than a Republican democracy that is looks more like authoritarianism. Uh, that to me isn't great, whether you're in the Senate or not in the Senate. It's certainly not great for his friends, family and, you know, future Americans. I, I just it's just very short sighted, not to mention cowardly. I, 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 I I just still I'm I can't put my wrap my brain around that kind of hypocrisy. I, I really I really can't. And and I'll just say what I tell my four children, which is if you let go of your integrity, um, it's over. You're you're lost. You're you're groping in the darkness in your life. Um, and here we go. Here's another example. It's it's really disheartening. Yeah, I mean in I mean obviously ambition can make people do bizarre things. This is a you know not a new phenomenon. However, you would think that people like J.D. Vance would have some sense of the way this will look 10 years from now, 20 years from now. I, you know, I'm, I'm waiting for the, oh, my God, what was I thinking when I said all of those things? I mean, we know what you were thinking, and, and there we have it. So this, is, this seems like a good segue into the, the half-year anniversary because I, I, I think it, it was really – it is fascinating watching – people's reaction to the six-month anniversary of the insurrection and how remarkable it's been. So I want to get your take on this. Is that, Has this been six months that has changed America or just simply exposed us, who we already were? I, I, I can go either way on this one. You know, I can go either way as well, but I do think we're in – uh, a, a, a serious new phase. Uh, I mean, as somebody who's been studying the Constitution for you know 16 years and thinking a lot about democracy, in particular the last four years, um, I'm and you know I'm less sanguine about the future of democracy. Not more, even though Joe Biden is in office, and I know that gets people upset to hear. Mm-hmm. And that's because of the January 6th insurrection, and that's because it's setting a precedent for voting. And we're going to talk about the Branovich voting case, but. Um, the last election, the argument was vote, 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 vote. I think after January 6th, uh, the question will be, it doesn't matter. Vote, you can vote to your heart's content. Uh, but when the next January 6th comes around, and if it's Republicans who control both houses and the Republicans you and I are just talking about, those that have no integrity, um, who cares what the voters, voters think? The January 6th insurrection paves the way to steal, steal the election from the Electoral College, and then that's the end of democracy. That means people in power pick who stays in power. And the fact that we haven't seen uh, any serious backlash now? Nancy Pelosi, you know, put Liz Cheney on this on this commission. I guess it's conceivable some of the facts will come out that will that will uh, sort of incriminate people in Congress, which I think is the big issue. Plus, people within the Trump administration, because all of the heat has fallen on the actual insurrectionists in the criminal justice system, not on the people behind the scenes. Um, but the fact that we're humming along uh, with the big lie is very, very scary. It's scary to me. Charlie. See, this is I, I know there are certain words that are overused, but the, the fact that we've kind of normalized this uh, this this attack on the legitimacy of the election uh, is really extraordinary. And if you go back to mentally think w- what you expected to happen um, on January 7th, when you were, if you were, if we're talking to ourselves on January 7th, you know, could you possibly have imagined the degree to which the Republican Party would just shrug this off, that we would find it, you know, this alternative reality, that we would have so much of the right-wing media involved in 
January 6th trutherism or, uh, you know, you know, sympathy for the attackers or just the incredible blind eye they've turned to it or the extent to which the belief in the big lie would become the absolute universal litmus test in the Republican Party. And that's the thing is like you can have and Jonathan last wrote about this yesterday in his newsletter. You know, a one time thing can be a black swan and that's bad. But if if it starts to become part of our politics, if it becomes, you know, I mean, a once in a, a century crisis is, is, is a black swan event. But but if it's consecutive, if you have, you know, consecutive transfer of power crises, that becomes a new mode of politics, he wrote. And and I think that's the scary thing, because it's sort of like we've had a laboratory test. What would Americans be willing to accept? American by, by Americans, I mean, conservative Americans, Republican Americans, whatever. What would they be willing to be okay with? And we're, we, we've gotten it uh, rather dramatically demonstrated, I think, in the last six months. Right. And I mean, back to J.D. Vance, what's the policy platform of the Republican Party? It's the big lie. What's the big lie? That votes don't matter. Um, that you take power by through lies and gaslighting. And, you know, we're one cycle away from the end of people choosing their their elected leaders in this country. And it's not even the presidential election. I mean, I think it's the midterms because if the Republicans control um, that, you know, both houses of Congress, what will happen when if Joe Biden or his successor or someone, an independent candidate is someone other than someone, you know, endorsed by Donald Trump wins the election in the Electoral College, January 6th will come around and they'll say, you know, fake election, last election was stolen. Um, we have our handlers across the country that'll now, you know, audit. We we're not gonna, we are not gonna gavel in the actual choice of the American people, even even accepting the Electoral College. And so, you know, my message when when people ask, well, what do we do? I think the midterms, you have to vote for people, I don't care which party, that aren't endorsing the big lie. And they're becoming fewer and fewer in one of the two major political parties in this country. No, and it's it's, it's extraordinary, by the way, with the, the pressure to have these these audits all around the country. Um, it's a pretty good indication of how this lie is is spreading. I mean, the Arizona audit was was uh, was farcical enough. Okay, at the at the, at the risk of beating a dead, dead horse here, I mean, one one of the things that we've talked about over at the Bulwark quite a bit is that. Congress needs to be focused on how the votes are counted as much as how they are cast. And I think there's been a great deal of attention to these voting laws that that deal with, you know, whether the hours of voting, whether the drop boxes, et cetera, voter ID, all of the stuff casting, which is which are important issues. But what you and I are discussing here, I think is the is kind of the the real existential threat is how the votes are counted. And the push to the push to have legislatures be able to override the popular vote, or Congress be able to set aside the votes of the state, this seems to me to be a much more urgent problem. And and I and I wonder whether it's time to have a lot more debate about changing the Electoral Count Act or a variety of other things like that. I mean, at least as much attention on that as the other voting rights issues that are out there. 
A hundred percent. Charlie, I've written about this as well. Um, The Electoral Count Act is old, you know, dates to 1877. And so for people who are listening that are asking, what is what is that? The Constitution doesn't really spell out how the votes are tallied and how uh, even the Electoral College actually translates into a new president. And so that was done by statute. And it's been fine because people have respected the will of the voters. But there are two big wrinkles or big holes in that statute. One is it doesn't mandate that the states actually credit the popular vote. And it says, and I'm paraphrasing, if there's some some question about the election on November 4th, legislatures, state legislatures can just decide who gets the electoral uh, college votes and just ignore the popular vote. So this act needs to be amended to make it clear states can't ignore the popular vote. And then the second piece is the the United States Congress. That um, so imagine we get to the next election, we get over that hurdle. The the legislatures are are respecting the will of the of the people. I mean, just to as a note in Georgia, Raffensperger, you know, a Republican refused to find votes for Donald Trump, who's now being investigated criminally there. And so Georgia changed the statute in Georgia to take the power away from Raffensperger and give it to politicians. So that's number one. Number two is when you get to, you know, January 6th, to make it clear that, that members of Congress can't just vote to not acknowledge the electoral count's of each state um, based on politics. They have to have a good faith, empirically based rationale for rejecting the popular vote. The Electoral Count Act doesn't address either of those things right now. And H.R. 1 and H.R. 4 and their Senate counterparts don't address either of those things. And I agree. I mean, we can have a Georgia type Senate runoff overwhelming, overwhelming popular vote for someone other than the Trump anointed one and still have have, lose the American people lose their choice of leaders absent an amendment to the Electoral Count Act. So I kind of want to call up Jamie Raskin, who is my hero when it comes to, frankly, sort of democratic principles, a a fellow former constitutional law professor and say, wait a minute, where's that legislation, my friend? No, you should you should definitely call him up and definitely ask that uh, question. So before we move on to the Supreme Court decision, um, we're talking about messy elections and conspiracy theories and everything. Um, what's your take on what happened in New York City? The New York City um, ranked voice uh, ranked uh, voter uh, choice uh, ranked ranked vote choice ranked choice vote. I'll get that right one of these times. I mean, it was it was a mess, and I'm not sure that it helps. Um, and I'm leaving aside the result, which is interesting in itself, but but just the, the the process was 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 really a cluster, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's really unfortunate because many people in the sort of voting and election law space think that that is one way to fix democracy in the United States. And again, for for listeners that aren't familiar with ranked choice voting, I mean, essentially. One of the problems, arguably, with democracy in America is that it really comes down to Republican versus Democrat candidates, and those are oftentimes sort of chosen by party leaders and funder fundraisers, and uh, and the voters don't get much choice. It's it's all or nothing, one or the other. And in many states, unless you register for a party, you can't even vote in the primary, so you don't even have a choice as to who you're, <laughs> um, who's on the final ballot, right? And so, ranked choice voting, the idea is it essentially works like uh, you vote, you kind of rank your favorites, and. Um, as they count the votes, the people at the bottom just kind of come off 
the list, so to speak. So um, eventually you might get your second choice, you might get your third choice. And the idea is it's more it's more reflective of the popular vote um, and it will incentivize people to go to the ballot box because even if you don't get your first, first choice, you might get your second and third. It's kind of like making a dinner reservation, like yeah. your, your top choice isn't there, so you'll go to your second and third. And and the fact that it, it didn't work well in New York, New York City, which was kind of a, a, a trial balloon, and the fact that it's now getting all this press, I think, will will justify or will put some wind behind the sales of people that want to stick with the old system, which yeah. really isn't good for regular people. I no, I, I agree with you. So okay, let's talk about the Supreme Court decision. This was uh, the one of the, the most important decisions that the court handed down this this session, even though the court has not been predictably conservative on every single issue, uh, six to three, they really um, struck a blow against voting rights last week, or at least that's what uh, that's what uh, knowledgeable critics have said. So give me your take on on this. Um, they upheld certain restrictions, uh, so certain voting restrictions in Arizona. Was it as bad as you thought it would be or worse? I thought it was a little worse. Uh, um, and it's, you know, this takes a smidge of a spade work, so bear with me. Yeah. Um, but in 1965, only 7% of black Mississippians voted. And that was even after the post-Civil War amendments giving uh, black males, essentially, didn't use the word males, but women couldn't vote for another 70 years, but but uh, formerly enslaved people the right to vote. States basically got cute and put up these arbitrary barriers to keep black and brown men from, from the polls. And that's why the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965 um, under Lyndon Johnson. And there were two sections to that, Section 2 and Section 5. Section 5 basically required bad actor states who had a history of doing these, you know, counting the bu bubbles in the bar of soap in order to vote or recite this Declaration of Independence, these kind of uh, arbitrary barriers to voting, um, they had to get run by the Justice Department. And the Justice Department would have to sort of bless these changes. The Supreme Court in a 5-4 decision devastated, basically gutted Section 5 in 2013, which was you know, so bad for voting rights. And then, so all of these cute maneuvers came back. Um, and the court basically said, you know, the statutes worked really well. We don't really need it. And we need updated data. Go back to Congress. That's HR4, Charlie. That mm -hmm. is pending uh, and blocked in the Senate, as far as I know. So, so it's been how many years? We still haven't fixed section four, five. So that, so the courts are that's now- the, That's the John Lewis bill. That's a John Lewis okay, voting right, right. renamed that. It was HR4, now it's a John Lewis vote. Exactly. And all that would do would put the Justice Department back back cop on back on the block. And you know, the court, when they struck down Section 5, you know, your conservatives even said, listen, it's worked amazingly. It's one of the most successful pieces of legislation in the history of, of civil rights. And it was renewed by Congress multiple times with massive bipartisan support. So in my mind, that was really talk about aggressive judging by conservatives. That in my mind, a conservative should say, listen, we're not touching an act of Congress unless it's blatantly unconstitutional because mm -hmm. it reflects the will of the people. But that, there's your conservatives. So Section 2 comes along, which was really a sleepy provision. And um, that's what was at issue this week. Can you use Section 2 now that Section 5 is dead? And Section 2 basically requires um, equality in voting rights. The court or the Congress amended it once to slap down the courts that are required and 
required an intentional discrimination requirement because the statute's silent on what the test is. Congress am- amended the statute saying, no, 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 we didn't mean that. We just meant there has to be basically equality in in access. Um, it, uh, the results have to have to reflect equal access. And so in Arizona, there were two laws at, at stake. One was banning on so-called ballot harvesting, the idea that, or limit, limiting, the idea that someone could pick up your absentee ballot. And that's really a problem in Native American reservations because they don't have cars and they don't have post offices. Um, and so the argument was made by the plaintiffs that, listen, this is really hard on Native Americans. It, 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 has a, it impacts their access to the ballot. The other one was if you don't vote in the right precinct, um, your ballot gets disqualified and canceled. And the argument was for low-income people who have to move around um, that more than people that have a stable ho- established homes, mm-hmm. that has an impact. And it canceled your whole ballot, including all the way to the top. So if the idea is, well, you have to, you have to be in the right precinct to vote on your people in your local community, why should they cancel the entire ballot? Right. So that went up. The thing here, this is why I'm a little not so, you know, I agree with the critics is the the Congress didn't give a test in the in the actual statute, and Justice Alito manufactured a five part test. Okay, um, that is nowhere in the statute. So for people who say conservative judges don't make law, that's just baloney. It's a five part test, and he said that you have to go back to 1982, and essentially said that's when the last time the statute was amended to lift this high burden and say, you know, if, if voting, if, if voting, uh, limitations or rules were in place in 1982, they're probably okay now. And Hmm. basically made it very hard to use section two. And honestly, if you read justice Kagan's dissent, uh, that the, you know, the other two more liberal justices, um, Sotomayor and, um, Breyer joined, I've never, I can't, I should say, I can't recall something that snarky and angry. She's really up to her whole point is, listen, section two is, was intended to sweep a very broad net. And now, you know, they didn't, they didn't say you can't use section two at all, which was one of the arguments conservatives wanted. Although, uh, uh, Clarence Thomas would have done that, for example, and Gorsuch would have done that, just gutted it completely. But they set such a high bar that it's really not, it's going to be almost impossible. And it's kind of a green light for more of these cute maneuvers that they're essentially saying, unless you can say that, that you can't really vote, you have other ways of voting too bad. And that's not the intent of Congress. So it's a very aggressive judicial uh, proclamation from the bench that looks a lot like amending the Voting Rights Act. This would seem to be a clear invitation then to Congress to pass the John Lewis bill. Absolutely, or, I mean, absolutely or some vital. or some version of it. That um, we have Michael Steele, the former RNC chairman, uh, writing in the Bulwark today. Look, it, it's it's time to pass something, um, even if it's a compromise. Joe Manchin has proposed a compromise that it seems reasonable. Don't don't let the perfect become the enemy of what is politically possible. It would be a massive failure for the Democrats to go through this entire cycle and not pass any sort of voting rights legislation, wouldn't it? Uh, I, I, there are no words, Charlie, yeah. just based on what we said before. Everything depends on this. The future of American democracy itself depends on this. If voters can't choose their politicians, it's over. And and the Supreme Court's not going to help. I mean, my only concern, frankly, and I said this even you know, back with the Amy Coney Barrett confirmation proceedings, is you know, if the John Lewis rights 
uh, Voting Rights Act passes, will the Supreme Court honor it? I mean, we have a court mm. that is perfectly happy striking down acts of Congress, and that's not its role. They're not elected. They're there for life. They can amend the Constitution through a decision where we the people would require two-thirds of both houses of Congress and three-quarters ratification of the states. They should stay in their sandboxes and leave the legislation alone unless it's massively, massively unconstitutional. And so, again, this gets really under my skin, this notion that, oh, conservative judges are less likely to to legislate from the bench. We are witnessing it right now. This is really the corrosive element of the court. It's not abortion rights. It's not gun rights. It's voting rights. And yet this court, this was one of the very few unabashed conservative victories uh, delivered by this court. I mean, the victories for the conservative movement. The court has been less predictable than I think a lot of people had expected it would be. So give me your sense of of how this court breaks down, because it does appear that there there is an active center that's reluctant to go too far right. And this has resulted in some I don't know, some 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 surprising uh, decisions. I mean, this was certainly, uh, I don't think that uh, the, the Trumpist right expected that this would be a court that would be upholding Obamacare, for example. Yeah, I mean, that, that was one place where they did the right thing in that um, it would have been really obliterating an act of Congress and, and putting 20 million people out of the business of having health care. Uh, and so they resolved that on a narrow justiciability question that is deciding, you know, whether there's injury. And so that was that was actually a good decision. And when I say justiciability, essentially it's what people know as standing doctrine, this idea that if you want to complain about law, go to Congress. If you've got a broken arm that Joe Schmendrick, you know, hit you with a baseball bat. And if that Joe Schmendrick is, I don't know, the IRS that, that audited you and did took your money, um, then you can come to courts. You need, you need, you need a fight between a, pl- a plaintiff and a defendant and the judges are going to call balls and strikes. And that's what happened with Obamacare. But, you know, uh, you know, they uphold first amendment rights when it comes to religious, a religious, yeah organization, Catholic organization in Philadelphia um, relating to its uh, mm-hmm. basically the state of the city of Philadelphia re- uh, denying um, referrals of foster children to this organization because they would not sort of honor gay marriage as far as potential foster parents. But I don't see that as necessarily a liberal victory. I think what we're going to see um, is First Amendment religious rights, particularly, you know, Judge Alito, Justice Alito, if you heard his Federal Society talk, which frankly was horrifying after RBG's death, um, in terms of how how sort of political it was, we're going to see religious rights justifying what people, I think, on the other end of the spectrum might see as discrimination. And then we're also going to see, we saw out of California, which I think will also have an impact on elections, uh, we, potentially, we saw the court use the First Amendment to champion corporations' rights, again, or, or you know, uh, legal entities' rights. That involved a California state law that said, if you want to be a nonprofit, you have to disclose who your donors are. And the court said that violated these nonprofit entities, First Amendment rights. Um, Now that gets in my craw a little bit too, because uh, I'm sure the framers of the First Amendment in 1791, this gets back to Citizens Mm -hmm. United, um, that struck down the McCain-Feingold legislation in critical parts. But nobody in 1791 was worrying about legal fictions first amendment rights because they didn't have corporations. So again, uh, this is a this is a conservative court being and quite yet, and yet quite they wrote a, and yet they wrote anonymously quite often. 
So right. I, I guess, now, that's I guess the this argument. Is, that is yeah. the argument. Yeah. That is the argument. And I do think there's benefits to that. We don't, yeah. back to the point that cameras in classrooms, uh, we don't want government monitoring us, although you could argue that with our phones, they, they can do that anyway. See, I, I think maybe you, you and I disagree on these two two questions. I do think that uh, a, a re- respect for religious rights and religious conscience uh, is is important, but also it's going to be the ultimate settlement that we have here. I think that that we we guarantee rights, but we also respect uh, re- religious freedom. And I, and I and I think that um, there is there is a there is a center there. And, and and secondly, I understand that people don't like dark money, but anonymous speech and the ability to engage in politics without being exposed, without being monitored. Is fundamental, which is why the American Civil Liberties Union and others have opposed some of these disclosure acts. And so I, you know, I yeah. didn't have I didn't have that much of a problem with them, and I was I was not surprised by those decisions. Yeah, and just to be clear, I don't yeah. think they're wrong, and I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm just looking at the trajectory. Uh, I think big data, Charlie, has just changed yeah, so much true. about how we need to think about these issues, and I think it goes right back to this concept of individuals having their power over government. I, I'm not saying that, and I agree. The, the this new center is Kavanaugh and Justice Roberts, right? Um, and Kavanaugh, I've you know known, known him for many years. I worked with him in the Ken Starr investigation. Uh, he's extremely intelligent, and I think he's an independent thinker. I don't think he's going to go with Gorsuch and and Clarence Thomas on a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I just don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know where we're going with when it comes to religious rights with this particular six three panel. It might get to some scary territory going forward. I, I just don't know. Okay. So very briefly, I know you've written about this. We've been waiting for a long time for Donald Trump to be held accountable by the criminal justice system. We had the indictments come down last week against, uh, you know, Weisselberg and against the Trump uh, organization about the Trump taxes. Now, Donald Trump seemed to acknowledge that they hadn't paid uh, taxes on certain benefits that they had paid to uh, Ellen Weisselberg, including, you know, for his cars and tuition and stuff. Um, Kind of an interesting mixed message from Donald Trump. Do we have the audio of kind of a, a mashup of, of Donald Trump saying that he knows everything um, but doesn't understand how this particular um, issue works? I know more about taxes than any human being that God ever created. I don't even know. Do you have to? But does anybody know the answer to that stuff? Yeah, does anybody know whether you're supposed to like pay taxes on that stuff? Does it really just really new? Class, classic Trump. So that's give, me, the give me that's a criminal defense, my uh, my friend. Is plausible or implausible deniability? That's how he stays out of hot water in in when it comes to taxes. Does that work for Donald Trump though? Well, I mean, you know, he famously doesn't write anything down or send emails, and this is why Weisselberg is so critical. Um, and we have Michael Cohen telling the United States Congress, listen, he didn't do anything, uh, nothing happened in the Trump Organization without his knowledge. But to get the big fish here, even on taxes, a la Al Capone, right? So people who say, oh, this is small potatoes. I mean, this is how the criminal justice system have gotten, you know, other uh, Teflon Dons in the past, and I'm referring to Don Gotti as well, who is known as Teflon Don. Um uh, is through taxes, but they need to show knowledge to get Donald Trump himself. They need to not just show this pattern. Uh, and it looked Weisselberg even kept sort of a, a register of these that. off off the, <laughs> off the books payments. But they need to they need to show that Donald Trump knew about it, and um, that's why Weisselberg saying, "Yeah, I ran all this by him," is really important, and that's why they put the pressure on him so he would testify in addition to. Perhaps Michael Cohen, because Donald Trump's going to say, just like he said in the second clip, listen, I didn't know. I just have 
bad people under me. And of course, as you know, he throws everybody under the bus, no matter how loyal they are, if, if he just decides they're not worth, uh, they're not beneficial to him anymore. That, that was my favorite part of that story is that apparently they, they kept this red file, like, you know, you know, how we are criming, you know, <laughs> Here, here's the documentation of all the ways that we are doing this, and it's. But uh, it, it may not, it may not be enough. Kim Willie, thank you so much for all your time this morning. I appreciate it very, very much. Oh, always such a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we will do this all over again.